Good morning and welcome back to another episode of Backbench Drive. I'm your host, John Lawson, and here with me, as always, I have Matthew, my co-host. And this week, for the first time ever, I'd like to introduce a very special guest, Dr. Frank Salter, who is the head of the British Australian Community. Um, We spoke about this organisation, I think it was one or two weeks ago on our episode, and um, Dr. Salter reached out. And we hooked this up, and um, I'm very excited for this conversation. How are you going, guys? Hello, gentlemen. It's great to have you, Dr. Salter. Good good to be here. Um, So I was hoping that this episode could sort of, uh, we'll talk, rather than what's in the news this week, we'll talk about the British-Australian community, and we'll learn a little bit, bit about its history and purpose and whatnot. So I think we'll go into our first question. Dr. Salter, what is the British Australian community and what's its purpose and aims? So the British Australian community, we see ourselves as as a normal, multicultural group. Normal in the sense that we exist to commemorate, celebrate our own culture and history um, and to, to defend our reputation in in, in the history books and in the media. So we have a defensive function, but also a celebration function. Yeah, fantastic. Um, so what is your means by which you achieve that aim? Yeah, well, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's interesting for us getting started in that as an ethnic lobby or defence agency because um, we're the only one representing Anglo-Australians. That's what is special about us. We're the only ones representing that really large category, Anglo-Australians, which really means mainstream, assimilated uh, Australians, people actually from many backgrounds, but who include in their ancestors uh, people from the British Isles. and. Uh, it's new for us, it's, and it's new for the system. So we're learning how to be a good multicultural agency. Um, you know, we uh, we complain to the normal human rights organisations when we, we we complain when we've been our people have been defamed. For example, in the media, we put out videos. People uh, will, if you go to uh, YouTube, for example, or to Twitter, you know, Twitter X, and search for us, you'll you'll find many videos on different topics, both celebrating our our uh, past and our present, uh, but also defending ourselves against uh, against slander, ethnic slander. So it's a, a bit new for us because we're the only group representing Anglo-Australians, but um, we're, we're getting there. We're, we're learning, learning the ropes, so, so to speak. Yeah, I think everyone in our sphere has probably seen at least one of your videos or clips by now. Um, I think what everyone has been saying is that they're very high quality. The production is uh, top-notch. It hasn't really been exceeded by anyone else in our sphere. Um, so we give you commendations for that. Um, why do you think that it's necessary for British Australians to have this? Because it's sort of unusual, right? All these other multicultural organisations represent ethnic minorities and we've never really seen someone representing an ethnic majority or really the founding stock in this way before. Perhaps that's why you're the only one 
Um, so why has it become necessary for the British Australian community to step up? Well, we've been excluded. The multiculturalism has has um, a normative definition, you know, as as it should be, as it's presented to the public, and then it has a, the re, there's the real multiculturalism, and the normative version says, well, multiculturalism, we're celebrating diversity, and we're defending our our each group is defending itself against being libeled by, you know, racists of different kinds. Um, and we're all celebrating our, 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 our distinctive cultures and so on. That's normative multiculturalism. And then there's real political multiculturalism, which excludes Anglos. And in America, it excludes white Americans. In Britain, it excludes uh, Anglo-Brits. It's actually a hostile a hostile thing because it's uh, multiculturalism in reality has been organized and mobilized against the founding majority in in every country that has been practiced it's only western countries where it has been practiced so we think it's the time has come for anglo-australians to play the multicultural game to get in on this important um, social and political activity that every other group does you know and they have um they organize together and they'll lobby together and and defend their interests and what what it often amounts to not always but often amounts to um is organizing against the interests of the anglo majority and um we look we look around us and we see the demographic shifting uh, very quickly against us. As soon as one thinks in terms of ethnic interests, demography becomes very important. And when we when we look around, we see that our numbers are falling rapidly, that our children are being indoctrinated in schools to hate their ancestors and to, you know, wear a black armband history of Australia, and um, the media don't have a kind word to say about Anglo identity or the colonial past or Captain Cook or Captain Philip or the First Fleet or the pioneers who actually created Australia. So we think it's past time that we had that Anglo Australia had its own defence agency that insists on whole in a moment, we're here as well, we have rights, we have interests, and we have a history, and we want to, we want the truth to be told, and we don't want to be, we don't want to be uh, uh, defamed. So it's, um, it's necessary, and if one looks back at the last, uh, say, since the Whitlam era, say 1970, when multiculturalism was introduced for the first time during the Whitlam government, 1972 to 75. If one looks at that, at the history of the breakdown of Australia's traditional traditional immigration policy, which favoured uh, Anglo's and other other Europeans, that breakdown in and and in effect its reversal, so that now we have large scale third world immigration uh, coming in for many decades. Uh, 
this couldn't have happened if Anglo-Australia had been represented. And why do I say that? Because it was opposed. Opinion polls through the decades indicated that if Australians had been asked, do you want to be replaced as the leading, as the largest demographic group in Australia? Do you want to be to become a minority in your own country? They would have said no. So, um, you know, it's, it's important that, uh, that we have a voice and we, and, we, and we speak up. So the BAC is an attempt to do that. Yeah, well, thank you for speaking up. Um, yeah, I think all of us, we were raised from a very young age to immediately recognise any expression of white interests, whether that be Anglo or European even, um, as inherently immoral or something like this. We sort of have a gut instinct, people in my generation, against it. Um, could you tell me a little bit maybe, this is going out of order in terms of the questions, um, but how did you get into this? Um, how did you get interested in uh, this field of inquiry and Further than that, how did you get interested in actually taking action and standing up against it? Well, my my pathway was academic. So um, I'm an Australian uh, born born and raised in the Parramatta area of Western Sydney. I went to uh, Sydney University, did my honours there, then my PhD in Brisbane at Griffith University. Um, and but I spent most of my career in Europe um, as a Max Planck Institute, as a researcher and as, as a teacher, as a lecturer in different countries, London, the United States and so on. And um, I came to, uh, my research came to focus on ethnicity because it's a, one of the largest bonded groups that's, that, that's possible, ethnicity. So I began studying that from a, a biosocial perspective. So I take into account human evolution as well as, as culture, cultural change and so on. So this is getting technical, but I began to look at Australia at my homeland um, as I d researched in, the, in this area of ethnicity and nationalism and multiculturalism. And I began to apply that knowledge to Australia. And I realised that there was something very wrong Australia, every group was represented except except Anglo-Australia. And when I returned to Australia in 2011, I began publishing in Quadrant magazine, uh, Australia's leading intellectual magazine of the centre-right. And, uh, and I noted in my articles, I noted this fact, that um, there were no groups, apparently no groups, representing Anglo-Australia in multicultural in the multicultural realm, except one group, um, the British Australian community, which began in the, in the 1960s, actually, as a, um, an organisation founded to help immigrants from the UK settle in Australia. And then it, it had different functions. They ran a travel agency at one stage. They, they, they had many of their branches. Um, organized social events such as ballroom dancing and different things such as that. And, but in the 1990s, um, one, one branch began to shape itself into a, an ethnic defense agency, into a multicultural agency, in other words. And, uh, and I, I, I took note of that. And, 
and joined myself um, after returning to Australia. I joined the organisation and and uh, served on the board and became president about uh, three years ago. Was uh, served a, served a stint as president and uh, began applying my scholarship on on multiculturalism and diversity and ethnicity and so on began applying it to to the BAC and the rest is history I suppose um, yeah and a uh, fantastic job with what you did when you seem to have really revamped it was the BAC sort of stuck in the past when you took over because I've never heard of it I'm not sure about you Matthew have you had you heard of it in the past Yeah, right. So I, no, it's not. A, I yeah, it's not exactly a, a super famous organization. Did you do a lot to change it, Doctor Salter? Well, I I just I just um, wanted to uh, apply. I wanted the BAC to become what other agencies are, and um, you know I, I follow uh, other organizations how. The, and, Overseas, for example, the history of how they organised and and how they operated, and just apply that to the to the BAC. And um, I just uh, it's nothing. It's not. It's not rocket science, as the saying goes. It's not. It's not really complicated. Um, it's just a matter of looking inside these, looking at other multicultural agencies and and emulating them. And I have I have admiration for the for all those um, minority ethnic organisations that have defended their people's reputation as quite appropriate. Um, I think part of the the change was I would begin a speech because I began re- recording speeches and they're available on YouTube by the way if people want to have a look at them different speeches. Oh, I'll link to them in the description. Yeah, on on strategy. For, for Anglo's who want to pursue a multicultural approach, and um, I would start the speeches by pointing out that we're a defeated people, that in a way we're a stateless people, um, and I think um, the old the old old nationalist approach had been failing for for several decades. The nationalist approach began with the assumption that we are Australia, we're, we're the rightful owners of the Commonwealth sort of thing, without even stating that. That was just the assumption. Uh, this is a, a new, what has happened is a nuisance. We need to shake off that nuisance and, and get back to, nor, to, to, to normality. And I, I would begin speeches by saying, well, that's false. We have been thoroughly defeated. Now we're being mopped up. But demographically, we're being replaced as a majority group. So then, there's no comeback. Once you're a minority, you're just just another minority, albeit a large one. Um, there's no comeback. So we need to confront the fact that we've been defeated, that the majority founding ethnic group in in Australia and other other um, uh, anglophone countries have been defeated. We have to confront that. And the, the appropriate re- approach now is to, is to 
enter the multicultural realm and organize in that way and look at other look at other groups that that don't pretend that they're running australia in some way that they're the majority group and they're the nation they they're just looking out after their ethnic interests and to understand that that approach one has to have an understanding of some basic concepts like for example what is a nation well it's, you know a nation what is an ethnic group what is a state what is australia what is the commonwealth how do they relate to each other and um you know i i found with the old nationalist approach which was by the way mainstream in the labor party and the liberal party and the national party really since um since federation it was just it was just taken for granted you know that um that australia is an anglo country and we 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 are it was just taken for granted that uh, Anglo's are the nation, and any deviation from that is a a nuisance in a way, a nuisance, and didn't take seriously the changes that have occurred um, since the nineteen seventies. Yeah, and they are very serious changes. We can look around us nowadays, and uh, even if we aren't statistically a, minor- a minority yet, we are declining into one, and it already looks like we are one in some parts of this country. Um, so uh, maybe this is going a bit off script, but has the British Australian community had any successes interacting with uh, the political class or with the media class? I know you said you uh, talked to, was it the human rights or something like that? Uh, some part of the government, whenever uh, Anglos are slandered in the media, have you had any uh, had any effect with the political parties? That's interesting. Our major complaint so far has been to the Victorian um, Human Rights and Equal Opportunity Board. I think that's its name. And we a couple of years ago we put in a complaint <clears throat> against uh, the um, uh, Melbourne City Council, which published a book called the Black Cookbook, which which quite frankly defamed Anglo-Australians and our, and our our history. Um, and we've simply heard nothing back. Just zilch, nothing. We've re- reminded them, nothing. And something similar has been happening with the with the with the media. So so far, we we are unreported. Now that's a little odd because <clears throat> a little odd because we've uh, we pu- we publish a lot of our work in Quadrant magazine, which is a prominent conservative magazine. It's reputable. It's uh, read in London and New York as well as in Australia. Um, for example, our our position on the voice, the recent voice referendum. Now that that now that was published. Uh, in a series of art, major articles in Quadrant magazine, we put forward um, arguments and positions that no one else was was putting forward. So we looked at the we looked at the issue from okay from a national perspective, but also from an, an Anglo perspective. What is it good for Anglo's? Which policy is the best for Anglo's? 
and I I would have thought that was that was newsworthy, but apparently not not according to the mainstream media. So so far, to sum it up, we're simply being ignored. Um. By the way, is that noise coming through? That loud noise. Yeah, occasionally, but um, it's okay. We can. I've got a thing that edits out the background noise, so it shouldn't show up anyway. Good. I'll just get back on that. Yeah. So, so we we are being ignored so far, uh, but uh, gaining interest, and um, I think people who who are concerned about these matters are beginning to take to take notice. Yeah. Uh, at this stage, I think that people who even recognise that Anglo and European Australians are in any way discriminated against, we're still a minority, a very small minority within this country. A lot of conservatives don't even recognise that as a top ten priority for them. The um, the anglophobic culture or the immigration policy that is demogra- demographically replacing us. Um, they merely, if they are talking about immigration, they're just talking about the high rate and its impact on the economy and housing prices and whatnot. Um, so how do you think that you can get further into each conservative's uh, sort of media sphere in order to influence, I think they would be the most open to your message. Uh, how do you think that you can get in front of their face and, and preach your message? Well, I think the way forward is uh, I always emphasize quality of ideas so we need to get our facts right we need to get our arguments right and our policy formulations reasonable and appropriate for the for the um, for the for the situation Um, now that can that has slowed us down because we've but on the other hand we've produced major major documents such as the book anglophobia which I think you mentioned earlier that's a book, a book-length uh, treatment of attacks on Anglo-Australians, written by uh, Harry Richardson and myself. Um, and then we have uh, a half-book-length uh, position paper on on the Voice, which goes into far more detail, by the way, than the usual the usual debating um, articles on that on that referendum. We we, we look at the at the overall um, relationship between Aborigines and Anglo's going back to 1788, so it's uh, it's more fundamental, and we take a principled position on, you know, on reconciliation. For example, we want genuine reconciliation, not just a giveaway by whites, by white people. Um, so. I think by, by our strategy is to maintain high high quality of, of uh, policy output, high quality of analysis, and it's paying off. I have to say, we're, we're, our rate of um, growth is not large, but it's very high quality. I'm very happy with the quality of people coming to us, and of course that will uh, greatly strengthen us in the in the in the future. Yeah, I've spoken to some members of your organisation and they are very knowledgeable individuals. Um, You mentioned Anglophobia. Uh, I wanted to speak about this next. It's your book. I read it. It covers everything, the whole situation. 
Um, you don't pull any punches, but you present it in a uh, very professional way, in a very intellectual way, I suppose, although it is still accessible to your everyman. Um, it, was, uh, it was quite informative, especially on the history of this switch where we went from a um, country that was unabashedly uh, proud of its identity around to you know the sort of uh, cowering mess that we have at the moment. Would you like to talk a little bit about uh, your process in writing Anglophobia and maybe just give us a brief of some of the topics covered? Yeah, right. Well, the writing of Anglophobia um, really shows the, the power of teamwork. So I'm a, I'm a dry academic. Um, a lot of people would find my my work length too long and a bit boring. Not not a bit, just a boring. So one day, Harry Richardson sent me a draft, a 6,000-word draft of an article at that stage. And he said, I've had this idea for how to present, uh, how to present the uh, disposition of Anglo-Australians right now, you know, the nature of the attack on us and so on. And uh, I liked it so much that, I, I, that he and I worked for a year on it and produced a book, you know, 40, 50,000 word book. So uh, that was a, a nice coming together of a, of a, a, a you know, a, a, a powerful style of rhetoric combined with, with academic research. And, that, and those two put together proved um, really effective, I think. I think the book takes a very practical approach. For example, one chapter talks talks about the assumption the anglophobic assumption that every other nation in the world has a right to remain a majority in its own country right so Cong it's assumed that congolese have the right to remain the in the majority in congo that, that you know uh, chinese have the right to remain the majority in china it's, it's not questioned it's just taken as common sense obviously you know but not european countries in European countries, it's they're up for grabs. What is good there is is considered to be um, diversity. Diversity. We are the blank canvas that everyone else gets to paint on. It appears, at least in the every eyes other, of the multiculturalists. Yes, yes, every other country, it's common sense. Of course, they want to remain, and they should remain the, the demographic majority in their own countries, not another country in their own countries. Koreans in Korea, J Japanese in Japan, no one blinks an eye when the, when the Japanese want to, quite rightly, want to remain the majority in Japan. Uh, and not just the majority, the super, a super majority, not just 51%, but 85, 95%. Um, so that really is, that negative assumption about white countries is really racist, actually. And it's, in, it's enforced. One, one can't stand up and say, well, not only am I happy to be Anglo, not, a, not only am I proud of my ancestors and my history, but I, I want my people to remain the majority in Canada, New Zealand, Australia, United States, you know, the, the Western uh, countries. Uh, that's considered unacceptable. It's considered out of bounds. So that is one form, one form of anglophobia, which is, you know, has been very effective in shutting us down. 
um, just just standing up and saying, I'll, I'll, I identify as an Anglo-Australian, is considered somehow strange and weird and extreme. But if someone says, I'm a, an Aboriginal Australian from some area, that's, that's, that's taken as... an. as, as you can as expect a government thing. check in your hand within the, within the hour. Yeah, it's it's a dignified statement to make. It's a dignified statement. Or if one says, "Well, I'm a Greek Australian. My my grandparents came here uh, in the 1960s," that's com- considered completely normal, which it is. Which it is fine. That's fine. But not if you consider yourself. Not if that same person, that same Greek Australian, says, "Oh, and I think see myself as a white Australian." That's not allowed. <laughs> All right. Yeah, I know. It's all, it's all to do with this victimology, that, that from a left from a left perspective, um, a group, anything a group does is valid if it's done as a victim group, not if it's or as done a perceived through, victim group, even or perceived, not not if it's done through pride, or especially not if it's done as a group that has been defined by the left as a perpetrator group, as a perpetrator. You know, so, so white society is to be slandered, it's to be defamed, it's really, I, I think, to be misrepresented. And we need to understand. Uh, by the way, I don't pretend to understand all these, all these questions. I, I can't answer all of them, but they need to be asked and, and explored. Why is it that the multicultural left hates Western civilization so much? Why do they hate white identity or the subset identities, you know, Anglo, Greek, and so on? Why is that? Well, they would say, oh, it's because of your shock, shocking history of colonialism and racism and bigotry, which, which all belong to Europe. That is an Anglophobic or racist remark itself. So the multicultural left is inherently racist in its attitude towards towards uh, Western civilization and Western identity. Yeah, one hundred percent, Matthew. Uh, you've been quiet this whole time. Is there anything that you want to add? Um, yeah, Doctor Salter, in your experience, you know, in engaging and being an activist in this kind of field, what do you think is the easiest way to broach this kind of taboo topic of Anglo identity and? activism to the average Australian? How can we practically do this in the real world? I think the, one, one, the, the best way to broach it is by bringing out one of our heavy gun issues, right? Not, don't don't um, fiddle around with, the, with marginal matters of, of you know, of, of concern. I'd bring out big one things such as is it right that our children are being taught to hate their ancestors, to hate their own people? Now, I've, I've had children at school in Australia, and I've, I've, I've sat in, you know, um, the meetings where the parents come along and, and watch awards nights, for example, and I've watched the acknowledgement of country ceremony being given. And one of the lines is, uh, Australia was, is, and always will be Aboriginal land. Words to that effect. 
And I was thinking to myself, what are my children meant to think? What are they meant to think about themselves? Don't they have feelings? The, the fostering of a, of a healthy identity is critical for, for uh, psychological development. It's very important that people ha that can place themselves in history and in society, that they can place themselves in a dignified way and, and you know, we have a crisis, a youth crisis now, now with high rates of suicide, um, high rates of uh, mental, psychological uh, problems, uh, anxiety, depression. And uh, as I see it, the school system, the school um, educational systems in every state, actually, are letting down young people. By by de by denying the majority healthy uh, group identities, why can't the acknowledgement of country be, it could be kept? And, and the BAC has come up with a version, an acknowledgement of nation, not of country but of nation, that includes the acknowledgement of country. It includes Aborigines, but it doesn't exclude the majority ethnic group. It doesn't exclude the nation. It's it's an absolute outrage, I think. That we have. I mean, when I was a when I was a boy, we would salute the flag, you know, in primary school. It all stand to attention, and we'd salute the. We'd basically do a loyalty ritual to the nation um, every time we had, uh, you know, a, a, an assembly. And now we do the opposite. So, so the the this is another example of government actually turning against the majority ethnic group. So that's one heavy-duty matter I would bring up. Another is another one which uh, I find just needs to be stated, is how do you feel about your people becoming a minority in their own country? Becoming a minority. Did you ask for that? Did you vote for it? No one was ever asked to vote for that. But that's the inevitable outcome of, of mass, what I call, indiscriminate immigration, right? So what have we got? So we've got education, we've got uh, immigration and demographic change. Um, uh, I think uh, slander or, or, or racial defamation against white Australians is another is another important uh, point that that can change minds. Is it right that this happens? No. If if it's if anti if anti-Semitism is wrong, if anti-Greek bigotry is wrong, if anti um, you know Chinese or Indian or whatever it might be, or anti anti-Aboriginal bigotry is wrong, well, what about anti-Anglo bigotry? Why isn't that wrong too? So a sense of fairness, I think, it, it is very important for the Australian people. I think they have a, a strong sense of fairness. And what's been happening with multiculturalism and, and immigration has really been unfair. So I, so I, would, I would point those out. So there, there, are three, there are three points. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I don't know if you had a follow-up, Matthew. I think it might be interesting for our audience, particularly maybe those who are a bit more moderate, who haven't thought so much about, um, you know, this coming 
demographic shift or this un the demographic shift that we're currently undergoing, um, what will Australia, how will it meaningfully change when uh, white Anglo-Celts and Europeans are a minority in Australia? What are some of the practical ways that Australia will be different? Dr. Salter. Well, we won't be naturally a Western country anymore. So that this has been taken for granted by elites that Australia is, is just a Western country. And, and they make that comment, not thinking ethnically. We are a natural first world Western country because our people are first world Western people. We were founded by, by, by the British Empire. Our, uh, under under the white Australia policy, or you know, it was it, there were predecessors to the 1901 policy uh, through the 19th century, most of the 19th century. Um, we were we we selected our immigrants because we wanted to remain who we who we were, who you know, which is a natural natural thing. Every other country does it, um, and as a result. Uh, we had a natural affinity with the United States, which is also Western-based. We had a natural affinity. Our big protector was Britain, of course, until the, the disaster of Singapore in 1941, when it was proven that Britain could no longer guarantee our safety, when Singapore fell to the Japanese. Well, another point, another important point here is it is also assumed not only that Australia is and always will be a Western country with those natural uh, attachments like to the United States and the Western world, but, but that um, as whites become a minority, everything will be friendly. Everything will remain friendly with domestic affairs. It, it's somehow assumed that white societies are hateful and bigoted, and if you only reduce their numbers from... 95% or 98%. Australia was like 98% Anglo, right? During during um, its its mature phase. Uh, if you reduce that to 60% or 50% or 30%, things will can only get better. I mean, that is a racist assumption itself. It's simply racist. It's ridiculous. The most the most relaxed societies are homogeneous or relatively homogeneous. Where the majority feels secure, it doesn't feel under threat. So, anyway, let's go back to this crazy assumption that um, as as Anglo's fall to minority status in in the country, that ethnic affairs will become friendlier and more cooperative. The opposite is happening. The opposite is happening. As Anglo's lose power, as they lose numbers. They're attacked more and more vociferously, um, and the multicultural hate industry is actually winding up and becoming bolder and bolder. So this thing with wokeism, right? This the this new word wokeism, which has only come in the last ten years or so. Um, it's a, I've never seen anything like it. But the the anglophobic hatred and bigotry. Is is extraordinary, um, you know, like for example, the assumption that the whiteness must be overcome. This whiteness theory, which is part of critical race theory, it's really hateful. 
really hateful. So where, where we're heading is not uh, a utopia where all ethnic groups just mix together and nothing, all the old rules don't matter anymore, you know, like who's in the majority, who's in the minority and so on. The opposite is happening where whites are on track to become a harried, persecuted minority, a hated minority um, in the countries that they created. And I think, I think we need to understand that. This is, if, if we care about our children and grandchildren, we need to prevent that as much as, as, much as possible. Yeah, Frank, following on from that, we see in this idea of a white minority occurring across the Western world, and we see certain political commentators like Tucker Carlson in America say that this um, event will cause a, ra a raising in the white identity or white consciousness in the country and the effects to that on the political scale. Do you see that occurring? Yeah, the American situation is interesting. So what, is, what ha has happened is that the... Uh, through various processes, the Republicans have become, decades ago, became the default white party. Now, many white people voted, voted for the Democrats and still vote Democrats, um, but fewer and fewer. So the majority of Republican voters are white, but the majority of Democratic voters is very different. They have uh, block voting by various minorities so hispanics i think it's 70 to 80 percent uh democrat or that's shifted a little bit towards trump um black americans um it's in the 90 percent night over 90 percent vote regularly vote democrat um asian americans even even asian americans who are uh economically successful by the way they uh, earn East Asians earn significantly more than white Americans, for example, in 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 income. But they don't vote their class; they vote race. They vote according to ethnicity. Okay, so so uh, America is, uh, I, I think, re maybe once before in its history was it as polarized as it is now. That was in the lead up to the Civil War of eighteen, eighteen of the eighteen sixties. America was tremendously polarized, um, and the parties, the Democrats, have been explicitly calling for minority votes. It's been explicitly representing the interests of of minorities. Um, for decades, several decades, not the Republicans. The Republicans have been implicitly um, attracting white votes, implicitly. And people like Tucker Carlson do not take an, an identitarian pers um, perspective, actually. So that'll be interesting to see what happens if they do, if they do that. And I, I, one thing about the BAC, is that we believe that, that um, white interests, Anglo interests, need explicit support. In other words, the way that multi the multiculturalism works with other groups, you know, 
all these all these uh, dozens and dozens of hundreds actually of, of ethnic bodies organized explicitly along ethnic lines um, and that allows them to strategize in favor of their own interests allows them to make plans and to uh, teach the young people about their heritage and so on when one is implicit uh, all a lot of that becomes impossible so, so you can't have a meeting to plan how to overcome for example um, some instance of uh, of anti-anglo violence or discrimination if one can't even say we are here as anglos we are meeting here to represent anglo interests uh, because this terrible thing has been happening to us or we want that or we don't want this so as soon as one loses an explicit identity um, you know, there's much less of one that one that one can achieve. So in the American situation, I think they're at a in in some ways in a pre-revolutionary uh, situation where only one of the two parties is explicitly um, ethnic. The other party, the the uh, that's the the Democrats, but the the Republicans are still implicit. And and divided by the way. So the elite of the the um, the the, the, re, the Republican elite uh, is is not pro. Does not take an ethnic position. Actually, actually the opposite. They've been exporting jobs to the third world to make because they, they represent the corporate interest, and so they they're interested in profits. They're not interested in the future of the American nation. And the Trump revolution, and th this seems to have uh, escaped the notice of Australian commentators, the Trump revolution had different aspects to it, but uh, one of its most profound was that he said, we should, we should, uh, how can I put this? We should turn the Republican Party into a nationalist party, not representing corporate interests anymore, except where it's compatible with the survival of the American nation. We should become a nationalist party, and that's proving, as far as I can see, tremendously popular among the Republican base, very popular indeed. So it's going to be interesting to see how that works out. Now, the the problem the problem for that approach for Trump's approach is that the establishment, the the broader establishment, uh, the organ, the mass media, for example, the entertainment in, industry, the universities, the schooling systems, and so on, are oriented against that. So there's a so there's a lot of uh, structural. Structural anglophobia, I suppose one might one might call it, in the United States, that has so far really def defeated um, the MAGA crowd. Yeah, the um, the Trump election was like a, uh, I would say, a massive catalyst for a, a rising white identity in the United States um, for Anglo's as well as every other because they they have a lot of Italians and um, a lot of other minority European groups. 
that has sort of formed an ethnogenesis in America. But yeah, it led to a, a rising consciousness over there. Um, do you see that ever happening here in Australia? Because it seems like our biggest enemy is apathy. And uh, it was I, I believe it was that apathy that won the no vote. But uh, it's also going to be that apathy that it will let us slide into a demographic minority without a, without a, even a whimper. Um, what, what do you see as something that can um, actually, you know, wake up uh, Anglo-Celtic and European Australians? Yeah, I agree with you. It's it, it's it's a challenge. It, uh, it's, it, it, it's difficult. Um, one thing, one factor that, to answer your question, one, one factor has to be got clear, and that is the what is the relationship between the Commonwealth, in other words, the, the political apparatus that runs Australia with its various departments and institutions and so on, what's the relationship between the Commonwealth and the nation? And um, this lies at the heart of our, of our difficulties because the Commonwealth was created to advance the interests of Anglo-Australia. Anglo-Australia was the nation. We're talking, we're talking the 1890s, you know, when they had the constitutional conventions and the, the constitution was being drafted and the idea of federation was being put together by the federation movement. And Australia, the Australian federal federated nation was created on the assumption that it served Anglo interests. This came out in speech after speech, for example, by the founder of the Federation Movement, Sir Henry Parks, who, who gave a famous speech at the first um, uh, convention, Federation Convention, where he talked about the crimson thread of kinship that binds us all together. Wherever you go into Australia, Tasmania, to Perth, Sydney, to Melbourne, Brisbane, it was the same people, people with an, uh, a, a, what they called then a British identity. Now, um, the Commonwealth was, was created to be as, as the instrument, a political instrument of uh, sort of pan-Anglo pan interests in, on the Australian continent. Okay, it was our instrument. We created it. It's an artifact. The Commonwealth is like a, a tool. It's a form, like a, it's a political tool, like a building a, a bow and arrow or building a spear. You know, you, you, you fashion it to serve your interests, and it did serve our interests uh, until right through World War Two, and through the sixties. Um, and then in the 1970s, something weird began to happen. It was a cultural revolution. And um, in, in effect, that instrument was taken away from us. That instrument now, according to political scientist uh, David Brown, he wrote a, a, a fantastic book in the year 2000, in which he pointed out that multiculturalism and mass third world immigration are examples of the Commonwealth no longer favouring the people that created it, Anglo-Australia, instead favouring minorities. He calls it licensing. Licensing. So the Commonwealth 
uh, made up of, of a vast bureaucracy, of course, and also extending out to to its consultant class in the universities and so on in the professions, has somehow, and this is not explained in my opinion, not fully explained, has turned against the Australian nation as as it was created, as it perceived itself to be. It became shameful. It became anti anti white. It became anti colonial. Uh, it was essentially a left agenda, and the and the real climax came with the uh, disastrous Whitlam uh, government from 1972 to 75. Just disastrous in so many ways. I mean, they had criminals in there, criminals running government departments. The Minister for Immigration was Al Grasby, who we now know was a mafia, a, a, an agent of influence of the, of the um, Calabrian Mafia. <laughs> it, it sounds unreal. Yeah, sounds he was. Unreal. A, I read that in your book and my jaw dropped. It was uh, pretty amazing. In anglophobia. Mm. The, man was, the man was funded by the Mafia. Criminal in politics, right criminal through, out of politics. Right career. And in fact, when, when one... Uh, down in Griffith, one uh, uh, ex-politician um, stood up against the local mafia and was assassinated by them and he, his body never found. Um, the mafia asked um, Al Grasby to spread uh, a lie, a vicious lie, that his wife had organised his, his, his killing, right, to take the, to try and mislead, mislead investigators. Uh, and he did that for a, for a fee. So, the, so here we had a criminal operating at the highest levels of, of government and another one, Lionel Murphy. We now know that Lionel Murphy was the person who put in place uh, the Racial Discrimination uh, Act 1975 and, and various other legislation. We now know that he was thoroughly corrupt uh, he had a, a friend who was involved in the illegal immigration industry, one might call it, bringing in prostitutes, Asian prostitutes, uh, to Australia. And um, Murphy was, uh, was, was corruptly defending him, giving him legal, high-level legal cover. So, so we, you know, multiculturalism can't escape the history it's a history. vibrant history i'd say <laughs> vibrant super vibrant <laughs> that, it, that, that it was partly put in, of course it was also put in place by many well-meaning decent people who in my view were just muddled and confused i, I disagree with them but i i don't call them criminals but, but it was partly at the highest levels put in place by criminals and and you know, this this needs to be explained to the Australian to the Australian people as well. Yeah, I thought it was only Australian colonisers who were the criminals in our history, uh, at least according to the multicultural establishment. You don't hear ever about any of their own wrongdoings or the wrongdoings of any of the groups that are being brought here, the different population groups. Um, so I think that is bringing us to the end of the episode. Matthew, did you have anything that you wanted to add? We talked about a lot of interesting so, um, topics. Thank you, Dr. Salter, for coming on. Just lastly, if there's any young listeners out there wondering how they can help or how they can get involved, just um, direct them to where they can help you guys out. Look, go to our website and 
joining for students is uh, really it's less than $25 for students. Normal membership is $25 a year. Um, just join up online. Go to um, BritishAustralianCommunity.com.au and uh, and also you can find links by just going to uh, to YouTube and looking. We have have our own YouTube channel, so look at one of those videos and follow the links. Um, I understand you're going to be celebrating uh, Federation Day as an organisation as well. You've got uh, organised something organised in Queensland and New South Wales. Is that correct? That's right. So if people if people link on, and uh, they'll they'll be, they'll be able to get details in Brisbane or or in uh, Brisbane and Sydney are the two main locations. So that's a big incentive for everyone to join up if you want to meet like-minded Anglos. Yeah, um, just join up, and, join and, up. and I'll, I'll be there and uh, Harry Richardson will be there in, the, in Brisbane. That's yeah, that'll be awesome. I hope it's a be, big turnout. It'll be, it'll be this will be, that's sort of like the first of its kind in many ways. Uh, I've never really heard of uh, a gathering like that. Uh, hopefully it becomes a tradition. I think that'll be very positive. Yeah, and all we're doing is is celebrating that that amazing history, that extraordinary history, where a little cluster of islands on the other side of the world set up a, a major colony. You know, began small, but uh, grew into a, a, a one of the world's most successful countries uh, in terms of liberty and standard of living. On the other side of the world, it's, it's unprecedented. It's an extraordinary uh, achievement. You know. And it should be celebrated without flinching, unabashedly. Yeah, exactly. It, it, it's a positive thing, and uh, and unlike you know many many countries, we we also tackle uh, you know faults and errors in in the past, and we try to make compensation. And of course, no one's we're not we're not saying that our our our, the Australia's founders were godlike or somehow perfect in every way. That's ridiculous. Of course, of course, errors could be made in principle. But look, just look at the achievement. Look at the achievement. This Captain Cook, for example, um, you know, a, a, an explorer, an intellectual, a navigator. Uh, he, um, the, the the leader of scientific, of scientific expedition. If anyone reads his journal as well, you're just absolutely blown away by this man's ability. You know, he's navigating by the lights in the sky at night um, and he found his way all the way to the other side of the world and he did so without uh, suffering the problems with disease that every other voyage in that time encountered. So he really was a trailblazer. It, it's a really an honour to have him as the first guy that discovered, well, not the, quite the first, I know the Dutch, I think, came around first, but the first Anglo to arrive in Australia, or to discover it. And that, and that, that voyage of discovery um, was so profound that he, he, he was famous, it was well known, the French tried to copy him and, uh, to, with, with, some, with some success. This was an age of discovery. Do you know that his instruction was after you've uh, your your scientists on board have have conducted their their uh, a, their a astronomical study in Hawaii, 
go down and explore this great south land story because the the ancient greeks had hypothesized the existence of australia they'd hypothesized it so to australia, balance out the world wasn't it to balance exactly the the different position of the continents mm. and so they said theoretically there should be they thought a great south lands down there so australia was hypothesized before it was discovered by, by Europeans, it's a it's an incredible story. Our our children hear nothing of this in our schools. That we hear the other perspective. We hear from the perspective of the people that were on the continent forever and uh, did not really do anything with it, as they watched the ships arrive on the shore and build an amazing society, and uh, how bad they felt about this. But we never hear about the amazing men that built the society, the actual notable part of the history. Not from their yeah, perspective. Exactly. And also, we never hear about the, the real implications of, of uh, European exploration and settlement for the native peoples of Australia. The real implications are overwhelmingly positive. That's not denying at all uh, the tragic elements to it, because there will always be colonisation, always brings disruption to lifeways. I understand that. But it was inevitable. It had to happen. So. So it happened in the best possible way, in my view. And it brought um, Native Australians into contact with the civilization that was creating a global economy for the first time. Never happened before. The British Empire create, was a pioneer in creating a global economy uh, with, the, with uh, you know, the, all the industry, just think they, they were colonised by people who, who had, inv had just invented the Industrial Revolution. Extraordinary luck, extraordinary good luck. Not only that, though, they, the British also were inventing liberal democracy, which, re which, which respected the interests of minorities. Wow, what incredible luck to be colonised by, by such people, especially since being colonised was inevitable. It was absolutely inevitable. The world was in a ferment of, of exploration and colonization and expanding powers, different sort of expanding powers. So already the Dutch had visited. The, the, had the Portuguese, various, various powers that were... In I'm the, not so sure about the Portuguese, but I mean, it's possible. I'm not familiar with it, though. I'm not sure, the, the, but there were different discoveries people stumbling on the, the Western Australian coastline. I know the Dutch were involved. Um, so it was inevitable. The French were in the Pacific, for example. The French were already competing with the British, going in the Pacific. So it was tremendous good fortune that Captain Cook came along. Yeah, I really did not grasp how warped my perception of our history was and of especially, you know, Anglo-Celtic Australians. Um, until I read Professor Winshuttle's Fabrication of Aboriginal History. Like, I, I read a little bit of Quadrant before then, and I was starting to wrap my head around, you know, this what I've been taught isn't correct. Um, previous to that, I thought, you know, maybe it's all right. The Aboriginals were uh, badly affected by this, but it's still worth defending our heritage. But after reading Fabrication of Aboriginal History, um, it completely shifted my perspective. The, the sort of... Um, the way that the colonisers conducted themselves, especially the government agents such as the soldiers and policemen, 
um, overwhelmingly, it was in a completely professional manner. They were law-abiding in this far outpost in a savage land. They were still obeying British law. There was a due process and everything like this, even when dealing with Aboriginals and whatnot. So it, it completely shifted my perspective. And um, yeah, so I, I'd encourage everyone to read that as well, as lo along with Anglophobia, of course. Yeah. yeah well, thank, thanks very much for the interview, John. That's all right. Thank you for coming on, Dr. Salter. Uh, it's been an honor to have you. Um, I watched your work for a little while and it's, it's top notch. I'm excited to see what the British Australia community has uh, in store for the future. Well, thanks very much and all the best for your program. Thank you. And uh, thanks for joining me once again, Matthew. Uh, before I sign out, I'll just say uh, make sure you subscribe to the National Observer, nationalobserver.substack.com. Um, make sure that you follow us. We are now on uh, Apple Podcasts as well as Spotify, and we're putting out episodes every week uh, with amazing guests like Dr. Salter. Last week we had Barclay, who, uh, you know, he's in the young liberal scene in Queensland. We've got a lot of exciting guests lined up, so I encourage everyone to follow uh, the British Australian community and also follow the National Observer and everything that we're doing. Um, and uh, Obviously, the uh, Backbench Drivers podcast is a part of the National Observer. All right. Thank you very much. And everyone, have a very Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas, everyone. Merry Christmas.